0: A reading from the Gospel of John, chapter 8. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, "'Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery.'" In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away, one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. The word of the Lord.
1: Heavenly Father, thank you so much for... um your great love for us. I thank you that we have this season of epiphany to celebrate, that you have been uh, revealed to us, uh, that if we are wondering what God is like, we can look at uh, your life, Jesus, and uh, and see that revealed. I pray that uh, we could come to terms with that this morning, that we could uh, not just encounter information about you, God, but encounter your presence. We invite you, Holy Spirit, as we already have this morning, but we invite you, Holy Spirit, just to speak to us. In the name of Jesus, amen. So one huge theme uh, as you get into the life of Jesus is that um, God's love is spilling over the borders of the story he's been telling in the, the scriptures uh, up to the point of the New Testament starting, uh, spilling over the banks of just dealing with Israel and, uh, and the descendants of Abraham, spilling over border after border um, to embrace the outsiders, to embrace people that um, uh, the, the establishment, in a sense, wanted nothing to do with and to show them the love of God. And so we're just moving through a a few key stories and epiphany of how the love of God kind of moves beyond borders and expectations to embrace the outsider. Um, Jesus is is, is regularly scandalizing people by whom he is willing to have a meal with, whom he's willing to have a conversation with, whom he's willing to embrace. And um, the question for us is to, to ask, are we a community that's embodying that type of love as well? Uh, could, could what was true of Jesus be said, uh, said about us? And, and this morning, uh, as you already heard the teaching text read, we have one of the more famous examples uh, of Jesus' love protecting someone who finds themselves on the outside, the story of the woman caught in adultery. If you've been around church, uh, you've, you've more than likely heard uh, this story before uh, when, when Mel Gibson made his uh, his movie about Jesus, the passion. This, this scene was in the trailer, you remember that? And Jesus like drawn in the sand real dramatically. <laughs> Braveheart, <laughs> Jesus, Braveheart Jesus. So I know you've heard this story before, or maybe you just heard it for the first time, but I think there's a few things we should ask of the text, ask of the story uh, to help us understand the context and in in particularly important ways, uh, set the scene a little bit. So I'm gonna ask you, like three quick questions. Uh, we'll move through them and then we'll get to the kind of the heart of what Jesus is doing here. Um, the first is why is Jesus a threat? Why is this, there a need for such a, a, a trap to be set? Uh, as we see in this scene. Why is Jesus a threat to the teachers of the law and to the Pharisees? You may take that for granted if you've been around church for a long time, but I think it's important to understand why are they so threatened by Jesus. The second is, how is this woman caught in the act of adultery? Which is, uh, ew, <laughs> that'll be fun. Um, number three is, why is this such a clever trap? Why, is, uh, why, why have they kind of got him in a pickle um, here, so the first question: Why why is Jesus such a threat? Well, the last you notice uh, in Jesus' ministry, uh, uh, in, in particular instances, sometimes he'll do a miracle and then he'll tell the person whom he's just healed not to say anything. Um, or people will be gathering around saying, you should be king, you can feed people from nothing. You had five loaves and two fish, and then you fed all of us. We want a ruler like that, you should be king. And Jesus will quickly slip away from the crowd. So there are many moments when Jesus is strategically, it seems, deflecting attention and moving away from letting a groundswell of popularity kind of lift him up. And yet, in, in the scene in the Gospel of John, in John 7, right before this scene in John 8, Jesus has one of his most public moments. The last scene that we see Jesus in before this woman is dragged to him in this humiliating moment, I I think giving us some evidence as to why the Pharisees and teachers of the law saw Jesus as such a threat, was, was this moment right here. On the last and greatest day of the festival, short pause, the festival that we're talking about is the Feast of Tabernacles. So all of Israel have come together. They're, they're hanging out in tents in Jerusalem. They're remembering the time when, when God provided for them in the wilderness, when he provided water from the rocks and bread from heaven. And, and they're remembering the provision of God through Moses to bring salvation. So this huge moment in their cultural, national identity, this is who we are, the people God has rescued, the people God has made promises to. And in the m- midst of that festival jesus we're all at the at the high point of the festival when they're remembering the water rushing from the rocks jesus stands up and he says something jesus stood and in a loud voice said let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink whoever believes in me as scripture has said rivers of living water will flow from within them By this he meant the spirit, whom those who believed in Jesus were later to to receive. Up to that point, the spirit had not been given since Jesus had not been glorified. So in this moment where God's provision was remembered, where all the eyes were on one particular moment, Jesus stands up and says, anyone who's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Anyone who believes in me will receive living water that will flood over their entire life, will transform them in the most profound ways. On hearing these words, some of the people said, surely this man is a prophet. Others said, he is the Messiah. And still other ask, ah, how can the Messiah come from Galilee? Does scripture not say that the Messiah will come from David's descendants and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? These people miss Christmas. Because Jesus came from Bethlehem. That's what I mean. Okay. Thus the people were divided because of Jesus, and some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. So this intense um, conflict about who Jesus is uh, begins to intensify in people's hearts. Some say he's a prophet. Some say he must be Messiah. Some say this man must be stopped. This man is doing damage um, to our people, to our, our faith, to our picture of God. The bottom line Uh, And and you knew knew this already, but Jesus, uh, the conspiracies to arrest and execute Jesus didn't arise because he was walking around saying, hey, we should forgive people, and I love children, and let me hold that lamb. They they arose because Jesus was claiming to be God, and that's scandalous, (laughs) They arose because he was saying, I can bring salvation. I, I can forgive sins. I can not just instruct you to be forgiving. I can actually say, your sins are forgiven. Rise and walk. All that you've ever done is, is, is wiped clean. So when we see this story start in John 8, that's, that's the backdrop. He's a threat because the story starts in John 8. He sat down to teach and the crowds gathered around him. Now imagine that you, your title in this society is teacher of the law. <laughs> You are a Pharisee. And Jesus comes in after sort of hijacking the highlight of your year. And now he's sitting down and crowds are being drawn to him. So what we see is jealousy, at at least. I mean, among other things. Maybe there's uh, indignation about his his claims theologically. But at least on the base level, there's jealousy. This guy has taken our influence. And you know what they do? They do what human beings so often do. (laughs) We wrap our base desires, we wrap our jealousies in a cloak of righteousness. We, we, we cover them up uh, in something that protects people from seeing what we're really about, but then gives us a, a real reason to, ar- to argue. Um, so we see a person has something that we want. And then we imagine they must have gotten it because of a flaw in the system or a flaw in them. And this is not the main point of this passage, but I do want to, want to mention because I see this happen in my own heart. I see this happen in the midst of community, in, in, ch- in church life. One, one quick note, a sensitive, a sensitive way that I see this played out in church is, um, is, is people kind of using desires that they have and cloaking them or jealousies that they have and cloaking them in a righteous cloak is, is the way we interact around community. This is just a side pastoral note that I quickly want to mention. So here's how it will happen sometimes. A new person will come to Trinity Grace Park Slope. They'll come into our church and they hear uh, a message about community and they long to connect with community. They long to find deep, meaningful relationships and they struggle to find those relationships uh, fast. It, it, take, it takes time and so they feel in a sense like blocked out in some way and so they begin to say, why is this? And there's something I want and maybe the reason I'm not getting is because a flaw in the system or a flaw in these other people around me. And so what they begin to do is they cloak their jealousy in a righteous critique they say something true about church community this place should be more welcoming and they're absolutely right this place should be more welcoming we should be the type of people who when we don't when we see someone we don't know we're moving out towards that person in love that's what Jesus is doing in all these stories in epiphany he's moving out towards the outsider in love to embrace the other to bring them in so that's that's one piece of it right Someone comes in, they can't find community, they struggle to connect, and so they imagine there's a flaw in the system or a flaw in all these people who aren't welcoming me. Then then something happens. That person stays. They stick it out. They get through the awkward greeting time a few times. (laughs) Then they meet some people. Then they go out to brunch, then they're hanging out with people. Then they do things over a series of a few months, and now they've got some close friends, and that close group of friends grows, and all of a sudden they actually find, you know what, I've got meaningful relationships here. I've got so many meaningful relationships that they don't all fit in my 400-square-foot apartment. And so you decide at that point, after being here for six months, to have a gathering, but you can't invite everyone you know from the church now, so you invite some of your closer friends, and you know what you've become? A A clique! You're not, you're not including everyone. What's your problem? And so you have a righteous critique in your heart. Listen, Jesus had 12. There's 10 that fit in my apartment. And in, of the 12, Jesus was really close friends with three. So I'm fine. Both sets of people have a righteous critique. And both sets of people at times... Are, aren't realizing that that righteous critique is cloaking a deeper inner desire. We want to be known. We want to be seen. We want to be embraced. We want to feel permanent. We want to feel needed. And those things are written into our hearts by God. They are, they are righteous desires. They, they are meant to be there. And they are meant to be met by a relationship with God and a relationship uh, w- with, with meaningful community of your brothers and sisters in Christ. So what do we do? Do we have to choose between being deeply welcoming as a community and or having deep relationships? Which of the two do we? No, we're not going to choose between those two. We're going to live in the tension. Are we going to wrap our jealousies in a cloak of righteousness? I hope not. I think instead we choose love. We choose to believe the best in one another. We choose to have grace. We choose to be the change in a community like this that we want to see. Thank you, Gandhi. When it gets awkward, when our feelings get hurt, we choose to talk to the person who is, has offended us as opposed to talk to everyone else in the world. <laughs> it's not the main point of this story, but I've been in church community long enough to see the damage unchecked jealousy can do. And I just wanted to address that very quickly. So, what it does in the hearts of these, these teachers of the law and Pharisees is it drives them to orchestrate this humiliating moment. Uh, they, they drag this woman into, uh, into the light of the dawn um, and, uh, and they humiliate her. But my second question is how? How was she caught? So there seems to be some strong evidence for conspiracy here. And you don't have to, you don't have to be a detective to, to kind of uh, get that a little bit. One, um, the, the passage begins at dawn. The accusation of the woman is that she was caught in the act of adultery. So it's a pr- pretty graphic situation. However, we don't see a, a man present. It takes two to tango. The man is nowhere to be seen. So it seems to indicate that some arrangement had been made to entrap this woman and to bring her into this humiliating moment. And whether the man was participating in that entrapment or not, one way or another, they're like, we need bait to trap Jesus. And they used this person uh, out of their own self-interest uh, to hu- humiliate her. So we have the reasons that Jesus is a threat to these leaders, but we also see they're willing to do someone else irreparable harm in order to get what they want. we're happy for the most part as we move through the New Testament to let the Pharisees be the villains, right? Of course, these people, these are nefarious characters. Of course, they would be doing something you know, shady like this. Of course, there'd be some kind of conspiracy. These are the guys who are trying to trap Jesus. But where do these people come from? <laughs> How do we arrive at this moment where they're dragging, these teachers of the law, these Pharisees are dragging this woman who's just been caught in adultery before, before Jesus? So the Pharisees, just a super quick history lesson of where the Pharisees come from. This is a group uh, of teachers of the law that arose during the intertestamental period. So when the, the, the prophets of the Hebrew scriptures end and before the, the, the gospels are written in that 400 or so year period, much, many things happened. Uh, empires rose and fell and and uh, Israel was occupied by many foreign powers and there seemed to be a great delay on God's promises that he had made to Abraham and so these groups arose within Israel to try to make sense of why God was delaying his his promises why they were experiencing in a sense the sense of punishment that we've fallen away from God's intention and we're, we're getting all these consequences as a result and there were four four big groups in a sense and and they were varying sizes but that that arose in different ways of responding to this problem that Israel was experiencing this punishment that their promises were delayed that foreign powers were occupying the land that God had supposedly given them and so the Essenes were one group and this was a group they were sort of the 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 monks of uh, of 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 these four groups they said you know what forget this everything's polluted, let's withdraw into sectioned-off communities, let's study the Torah, let's wait for God to to return, Uh, let's make sure at least, if everything else is going to hell, that we are are purified. So that's one group, the Essenes. On the complete opposite end of the spectrum was the Sadducees. Now, if you read the New Testament, you come across these, these names, you probably skim over them if you don't have any historical background, but the Sadducees, these were the savvy political operators. They were like, listen, Rome's already here or, or the Persians are already here. We've got to, we've got to make the, do with the, the best possible way we can. Let's compromise on some of our beliefs if we have to, but let's make sure that we stay important. Let's make sure that we, we stay as uh, in, in, important linchpins in the society here. And so the Sadducees were political opulators who said, listen, we've got to compromise. We've got to make uh, changes to our beliefs if necessary to make sure that we stay in power. The zealots, maybe even further on the other end of the scale from the Essenes, they said, forget this. We're gonna to take to the hills. We're gonna organize a violent political upheaval. This is like guerrilla warfare. We're gonna organize in the hills. We're gonna storm out of the hills. We're gonna drive the Romans out. We're gonna make sure that God's promises, right? And they had some, they had some history to draw on, the Hasmonean re- uh, uh, revolution, Judah the Hammer. This had happened before where guerrilla warfare was able to, uh, you know, through, through strategic strikes, to drive out the occupying force in Israel. And then you had the Pharisees. Now, quite honestly, this is the, the populist group. <laughs> this is the group that if you're living in, in first century Israel and you have a question about how to follow God, you're probably going to the Pharisees about it. These, this is a group of, of all the other four groups. They said, we're in this place because we've forgotten God and his ways. We've drifted from our unique identity as the people of God, and we've settled for something less. We've, we've compromised. We've, we've, uh, we, we've been changed, and we've got to return to the Lord. We've got to return to following his ways. And so what they did was they began to become teachers of the law. Let's figure out ways to help people in their daily practical lives follow the, the law of God. Now, what they did, out of seemingly good, noble motivation. They said, we've got to make it, if this is the line that you can't cross or you've broken the law, we've got to make sure people aren't even getting close to that. And so they created all of these traditions around the law in order to make sure people didn't get any even close to it. What they called this was fencing the Torah, Let's make sure that you're you're not going to come anywhere close to breaking the actual law because you're not going to get near it. And they they created this list of interpretations and traditions and teachings that went around the Torah to, to protect it, to fence it. And so this group, the Pharisees, for as much as we see them as villains in the New Testament, they began from noble motivations. But what happens to them is what happens to so many of us. For many of you, the thing that will derail your, your life is, isn't some like terribly obvious vice. Some of us will wrestle with a, a addiction or, uh, or, 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 or some obvious out, outward thing that will bring us down. But for many of us, it's just this, it's this subtle making things that are really good ultimate. It's saying like my, my work, my job, which is really important. That becomes everything. That becomes how I get my identity. That becomes how I become validated as a human being. And we, we, we take good things, noble things, and then we make those things God. And listen, a noble motivation is just as easy to, to tear you apart if you make it your God as an obvious vice. And that's kind of what happens with the Pharisees. Their noble motivations eventually become distorted priorities because over time they, become, they come to love their power and influence. You're helping us follow the law. You're important. Sit here. You're helping us make sure that God's favor is going to be restored to us. Tell me, what should I do about, about this and that? And Jesus has some incredibly harsh critiques for them, but he also is regularly interacting with them. You almost sense his heart is like, I know how you began. I know what you're after. Now you're just miss, you're missing the heart. You've become these whitewashed tombs. You look, you look beautiful on the outside and inside you're dying. I'll give you just a few of the critiques Jesus has for the Pharisees. It's from Matthew 23. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and they put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. This had become the Pharisees, the teachers of the law. He says, he says again, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of law, uh, the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. He's saying, you're, you're getting the details right all the way down to your spice racks, and you've forgotten love. You've forgotten the whole heart of God. And we have to be people, as as those who participate in regular religious activity, we have to guard ourselves against what Jesus called the east of the Pharisees. Is that we begin to subtly imagine because we participate in religious activities that we are somehow elevated. This is a community entirely formed by the grace of God. By love undeserving, but love poured out on us. And poured out on us not because of our record, but because of God's love, and therefore extended to everyone we meet (laughs) with God's love, and not through the mesh of our evaluations and preferences. So, this group began by seeking to help people follow God's word, but they lost the plot. So much so that they dragged this woman into the morning light to be humiliated and possibly killed in order to make their point and secure their place. Now, Another important thing that's not even necessarily the main point of this text, but you don't become a person who's willing to do something like that overnight. It's a process. You don't become the person who cheats on their spouse or takes money from their boss or loses all their faith in a single moment. Most of the time, there's a long process of of a slow concession to self-interest and self-protection. For, for many Christians, I see it's, it's just the, the beginning to lose an urgency of going to the well on a daily basis to, to remember the love of God, to hear our true identity, to let our desires be formed in the presence of God. And then you, you keep up the, the outward expression long enough, but the heart has, has begun to, to erode within you. And then eventually you do something shocking to yourself. Most of the time, it's, it's a... Long, slow concession to self-interest and self-protection. You in subtle ways say, I know better than God, until you really believe it. Someone doesn't just wake up one morning and say, I'm going to vote for Trump. They've been on a decline. They've been slowly pulled into the darkness. I'm just, I'm not, I don't make many political statements. That'll probably be the last one. Please email me if you're offended by that, and we will talk personally, like I said, about that earlier thing. Okay. <laughs> okay. All right. Third question about the context. Why is this such a clever trap? Why is this a good idea in a you know, sort of a sneaky, nefarious sense uh, by, by the Pharisees? Well, the law of Moses said that if a man or woman was caught in the act of adultery, and there were two or more witnesses, they were to be condemned to be executed. Now, that's a pretty challenging thing to do, as a matter of fact, to catch someone in the act of adultery with multiple witnesses. This person's got to be not very careful for that to happen, but the reality is um, they bring this woman to Jesus. It's almost like there had to be a conspiracy for for this to end up being the situation, but they bring this woman to Jesus not to find out if she's guilty, but to hear something about her sentencing they know she's guilty. So here's the dilemma. Here's the trap. One, Jesus can choose mercy and ignore the law of Moses, and he'll discredit himself in the eyes of the crowd, or he can choose justice and forego the way of mercy, and he'll turn out not to be this you know, loving, miraculous healer that everyone's flocking to. So either way he goes, it's a lose-lose for Jesus. He either he ignores the law of Moses uh, or, or he, um, he, he, he chooses justice and, and, and shows himself to be uh, lacking in, in mercy. So Jesus kneels down on the ground and I don't think it's because he's like, what do I do? I'm going to write in the sand. I think he takes a moment and then he does something entirely different from what we expect. So the last few minutes we have, I just want you to observe a few punchy statements, the way of Jesus. This is the way of Jesus in the, in the midst of this trap, in the midst between being forced to choose between justice and mercy, being forced to choose between truth or grace, right? And that's, so many of us divide along those, those lines, right? We want, we want grace to be so in, in, entirely the reality that uh, we ignore truth and that it, basically want the type of God who's like, you know what, I don't care what you did. Just come on come on into the family. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. But what that does is it compromises the very character of God. He has to say good to things that are evil. He has to say yes to things that go against his character. So grace has to have a measure of truth. But if we have only truth, which many people will cling to, like, yes, give me the truth, I had a guy over, over New Year's who was talk, talking to me about how he loved justice and how he thought Javert in uh, Les Miserables was the hero. Freak, right? That's what I said. I was losing it. He's like, no, he, he pursued justice all the way. He's like, you missed a point, man. Candlesticks in the grace. French people. All right. Jean Valjean. the first thing we see in the way of Jesus is that he does not shame. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery and they made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. And the law of Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. So we can imagine this scene. And, uh, Last time I, I spoke in this, Chris Domic, uh sent me uh, some uh, some observations from a friend of his, Bruce Kuhn, who meditated on this passage, and um, I just I've been thinking about it for a while. Well, you know, there's some questions about what Jesus is doing. What's he writing in the sand? Right? Scholars go back and forth about it. But you imagine this scene: the woman is utterly humiliated. The man in the picture is not there. We don't know how much time she was given to properly clothe herself, but she's standing in the morning light. Clearly not much care has been given to her state or her condition. Everyone is staring at her in this moment, except Jesus. He kneels to the ground and he takes his eyes off her. He could have been playing hangman in the sand. One of the points is he wasn't looking at her. He wasn't gawking at her the, re- the way the rest of the people was. people were. We don't know what he is writing, but he is not participating in the shaming of this woman. He is, in fact, drawing attention to something else. Now, imagine this climactic moment. What do you say, Jesus? And he kneels down and starts writing. Now, everyone's going to be like, what's he writing? Can you say what he's writing? I can't say what he's writing. What's he, is he writing in Hebrew? What is he saying? What words were those? Did he write a sin about me? He does not shame her. Second thing is he refuses the trap. He refuses the binary choice that he's given in this situation. Justice or mercy, truth or grace, Jesus chooses another way. The woman is clearly guilty of the things she's accused of. Is Jesus going to ignore that? Will he ignore justice? Jesus has come with this message of mercy. The kingdom is at hand. Repent and believe. Will he show grace? He takes a moment. He kneels. He writes in the sand. He lets the tension build. Perhaps he gives just enough time for the fast-paced events of the morning to slow down, for people to kind of wake up to what's happening here, for people to see the scene for what it really is. Perhaps he does write sins of the Pharisees in the sand. Whatever he is, he does not choose between truth or grace, between justice or mercy. He shows another way. Here's what the story says. Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. And then he kept on, when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And then again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard him began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. He doesn't say that what she's done is fine. He doesn't say that no punishment is deserved. Instead, he addresses the qualifications of those who are attempting to be witnesses and executioners. He takes the mantle of judgment off those who are not worthy to wield it. He says, let him who has no sin be the first to cast a stone. Let the person who's perfectly kept the law of Moses be the judge and executioner in this instance. And they drop their stones and leave, starting with the oldest. And Jesus goes back to his picture while they all walk away. So Jesus has rescued this woman now. He's found a way out of the trap. He's offered this third way out of the binary choice between truth and justice, between uh, grace and, 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 uh, and justice. But that's not all. He's quite literally saved this woman's life, but then he speaks to her. Actually, he's the only one who's perfectly kept the law of Moses, who does actually have the authority to speak whether or not she should be condemned, whether or not she should be punished. And here's what happens, and you you know it. Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Jesus says, these things you have done, these choices that you've made, this trap you've fallen into, these are not the final words about you. And I wonder if you would hear Jesus say that to you. (laughs) The worst choices that you've made, the habits of thought and behavior that you may feel trapped by, the the ruts of patterns that every year you make resolutions to get out of, I wonder if you would hear and allow Jesus to say, those are not the truest things about you. Your anxiety is not the truest thing about you. Your depression is not the truest thing about you. Your lack of work is not the truest thing about you. Your pornography addiction is not the truest thing about you. Those, uh, whatever it is. These men, these accusers, they said they had the right to stand as your judge but I have the right to stand as your judge. The one who's fully qualified to render judgment says you are not condemned. He says and said there is hope, there is life. There's more than what you have seen. But he doesn't end there. He doesn't simply not condemn. He doesn't simply rescue Her life is spared and then he, he leaves her. That's not, that's not the story. Instead, he invites her, he even commands her not to go back to the same life that brought her to this situation. He says, and these are the last words of the story go now and leave your life of sin. You've been given life, church. You've been given life. You've been spared, you've been forgiven, you've been cleansed, you've been healed. It's been spoken over you because of, because of who Jesus is and what he's done. You are not condemned. Now, you're invited to walk into freedom. You're invited to walk into a whole entirely new way of life. Jesus says these sins that we participate in, these ways of going against the way of God, they have their own built-in consequences. You find yourselves in these type of humiliating scenarios where there doesn't seem to be any way out. And Jesus said, when I let you out... Now, walk in, the, in a new way. It's like he says to Lazarus, Come out of the grave. And then he says, Take off your grave clothes. You don't live in the grave anymore. Go walk in the freedom that I've won for you. Don't go back to your shame. Here's what, here's what Jesus does with this woman and what he does with every one of us He rescues us and then he invites us to a new life. We have to see that he does both. Right, you've, heard, you've heard the, the, the saying, maybe, maybe so many times it's going to become cliche to you, that God loves you just the way you are, but He refuses to leave you that way. If you, God and His great love can accept us exactly as we are, but His great love will also transform us into who we were made to be. I, as we move to the communion table, I, I want to set up another trap for us. And bring it close to home out of just this woman's story and into, into our, our own story. Here's the reality. There's something in the scripture uh, that's called the law of sin and death. It doesn't sound that happy. Um, it's pretty intense. In, in the world described by the scriptures, this law of sin and death is a law as real as gravity. And he, here's, here's basically how it goes. God is the source of life. God gives life. God is life, and when you go against God, which essentially that's what sin is. So, so he, he, the law of sin and death begins this way: when you sin, when you go against God, His law, His character, His words, you separate yourself from life, and what is brought into the story is death. You see this in the very beginning in Genesis. You see this in every one of of our lives when we go when we go against God's way, God's law. Like, is God just you know really angry, and He wants really moral beings, and so He's like swatting people with death because their sin no the, the reality is to sin is to separate yourself from God and the natural consequence of that as real as the law of gravity is for death to be in the story to for death to be imported into our reality our trust dies our safety dies, our relationships die, our bodies die, our, loves, our love dies. If you choose the way of self over the way of God, there is no escape from the reality. The result will be death. So here's the thing. Most, for most of us, it's a slow play. It's not like we have one huge dramatic sin and we, we drop. It's that we have this slow hardening of our hearts where the consequences are small and manageable enough for long enough that we begin to imagine we can do life, we can curate our own desires, we can meet the needs of our soul in our own way. That we don't need God practically, that we don't need him functionally, that, that we can name him and pay lip service to him, but we don't need him to actually be the guides of our life. And so, for so many sins, the consequence is directly built in, like this woman caught in adultery. But for many others, for pride and for envy and for greed, the, the, the result is a lot slower. But the reality is still present. You might not lose everything in the affair. You just become smaller and smaller in a cage of selfishness and envy. But sin always leads to death. And the only way out of it is the way we see in this story. It's for Christ to step in. As we move to the communion table, I want to give you a commentary on this story from the book of Romans. And this will be the last thing I say. And then we'll go to the table. This is how Jesus has chosen to deal with the trap of the law of sin and death. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh. What does that mean? For no one anywhere ever was able to live perfectly up to the way and the character of God. And so every single one of us has an inheritance of sin. And the result of that brings death into our world. Separation from God and separation from others and brokenness in our our understanding of our identity. On every level of our relationships, there is fracture. What the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. You know why Jesus is able to let this woman off the hook? Because when his moment comes to be drugged into the morning light, he's going to take the blows. He's going to be scourged beyond recognition, drug out of the city, and nailed to the cross. And so he can say to her in this moment, I don't condemn you. And as a matter of fact, the full consequences of what you've done, I'll I'll absorb them myself. And I'll offer you my love. I'll offer you a new life. So here, here are my questions as we go to the table. Who here feels trapped by something? You made your resolutions. Now it's two weeks in. You're like, man, I'm still the same person. What happened? I don't mean to make light of it. It is. It is a desperate feeling to feel like there are things that have mounted in your life that you cannot, by willpower alone, get out of. <laughs> that you feel backed into a corner that whether it's anxiety or depression or some pattern of thinking or some pattern of, of choices that you've continued to make or, or, or something you said you were never gonna do, who here feels trapped and condemned by something? The loudest voice you hear playing in the, in the inner consoles of your mind is the voice of shame. You are not enough, you never will be. These things are for other people. You can say you believe in the love of God, but you can't feel it if you feel trapped by something, I wanna invite you to hear the words of Jesus. There is no condemnation. Come and be free. Come and experience a new way. Come and experience new life. My second is, how many of us have been the ones holding the stones? How many of us have been prideful and judgmental in our heart? And we've been those who imagine we've got it together and so we're constantly We're constantly offering the voice of shame to others through criticism, through sarcasm, through judgment. Can we be a type of people who offer this radical love, especially to those who aren't immediately like us, who are the outsiders? Can we be that type of community? That's the the community of Jesus. So very simply, communion, we come to the table. We come to Jesus, the one who is broken and torn apart for us. The one who says, neither do I condemn you and go and leave your life of sin. Stop settling. Step into freedom. Let me pray for you. And then in just a few moments, I'll invite us to the table. Heavenly Father, I pray for everyone who feels trapped uh, by some sin, some behavior, something that they feel like they cannot get free from. I pray in the name of Jesus that you would uh, break uh, those, those strongholds with your mercy, that you would just break through and show your kindness and bring your freedom I I claim the promise of your word that where the spirit of the Lord is there is freedom and I just pray Holy Spirit that you would move in these next moments in the hearts of everyone God who is who is attentive to you right now that you would speak to them speak the ways that you long to bring freedom and and to remove shame and condemnation I pray for us as a church, Lord, that we would become such a hospitable, welcoming community that's also defined by deep, meaningful relationships. Show us how to walk in the tension of that. Show us how to drop our judgments and self-protection and embrace our neighbors with love. I thank you for this meal. Thank you for your broken body and shed blood. Show us how we are meant to respond in these next moments by your Holy Spirit. In Christ's name, amen. I'll give you a few moments to reflect right where you are and then in just a moment I'll invite us uh, to the table. Just pray honestly uh, right where you are to God and ask him how he would have you respond.